And it goes as follows. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God is faithful to complete the work that he began in us. Chapter 12 really serves as the concluding remarks of the previous chapter. All that was mentioned beforehand in chapter 11 was the author begins to paint a picture of those who came before us. Those who, in the race of faith, they, they were examples or models that we can look to for encouragement and for hope. He lists people like Abraham and Moses and Rahab and David, who by faith trusted God to his word until the very end of their lives. He'll even go as far as to highlight those whose faith in God cost them torturous and gruesome deaths. Their faith, though it cost some their lives, though, it was seen as commendable to God. Out of all of humanity, God lists a small group of people who he says, by faith, it was commendable. He looked upon it and said, this is commendable. Now, we don't know for sure, as the author mentions this cloud of witnesses, whether this is to be taken literally or figuratively. But the one thing that we need to ask is, this cloud of witnesses, what are they witnesses to? What are they witnesses to? I think we find in the text that these witnesses were witnesses to the faithfulness of God. The intent behind this list wasn't to elevate or to esteem these individuals as if they were uncommon or extraordinary individuals. But it merely was to point us to God's faithful work in his people from the beginning of time all the way up until now and forevermore. These men and these women were no different than you and I. I mentioned before that suffering often can lead us to a place where we call into question the faithfulness of God. And so what God is saying here with this list in chapter 11 is, look, I'm going to put it on display. I want you to see that my word, that when I promise to you that I will continue my work, that I'm going to do it all the way into all the way until completion. He says, why are you doubting me? What have I done to make you think that I'm a liar? Earlier in the book, in chapter 6, 8, he mentions to this group that it's impossible for God to lie. He reaffirms it by pointing our attention to Numbers 23, 19, which reads, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's, it's important for us to know this, guys. It is important for us to know that just because we are familiar with the truths of God doesn't mean we actually believe them to be true. Isn't that the reality in our lives? If we've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, if we grew up in the church, there are so much information that we can hold to. There's so much information that we know about God, but, but suffering comes in and it reveals, do we actually really believe that? Do we actually believe that God is a provider when we're on the brink of homelessness? Do we actually believe that God cares about my marriage and that he hates divorce when it seems as though tomorrow's the day that I'm going to give up? 
Suffering has a way of exposing what we truly believe. And so it's important for us to know that just because we are familiar with truths about God, it doesn't mean that we actually believe them to be true. God is good to us. God is good. He can't ever go back on that. He can't ever deny his word. And this list, it authenticates that truth. It serves as proof that God is faithful until the very end. What's interesting about chapter 11 is that you can think that these individuals are special. You can think that they're different from you and I. But at a closer glance, you'll find out that these people have committed some really heinous and gross sins. That they have in no way been the model example of morality or even faithfulness to God. And yet God lists them. Abraham, as he stepped out of faith to go to the land that God has promised him, he enters into an Egyptian city. As he enters this Egyptian city, he says to his wife, hey, I know you're banging. So what I'm going to do is I need you to pretend to be my sister. And so as you pretend to be my sister, out of his fear that Pharaoh and other men would take, would take, kill him and take her to be their own, he says, look, we got we to gotta play our cards right. You're my sister, okay? Just remember that. Abraham, because of his fear, is willing to prostitute his wife away to save his own soul, to save his own life. Noah, who built an ark to preserve life and creation in celebration to God's grace upon him and his family, he throws a little party and gets blasted. He gets drunk. David, a man after God's own heart, a man that we look to and is named amongst those who loved God and had faith in God, David steps out on his balcony and he sees a beautiful woman in the distance taking a bath. He says to himself, man, I need to find out whose woman is that. And so he does. When he finds out, he finds out who her husband is and then he goes and he has him killed. He has the husband killed and then only so that he can take her to be his own. These are the examples that God is using here. That though these men and women are now being listed off as people who had stellar faith, the reality is they weren't perfect. Their unfaithfulness should show us that success doesn't merely lie in our faithfulness, but it relies on God's. God is the one that is faithful to us. God is the one that we lean on, not ourselves, not the, our abilities, not the things that we could do. A few years ago, um, a workout program came out called P90X. Anyone familiar with that, P90? P90? So about six years ago, this program comes out, and a group of us were like, man, we want to get in shape. We want to, let's do it, let's do it. And the appeal is that as you look at this program, they guarantee you if you perform it perfectly, then you'll go from this to this. And so you see these people who are just so out of shape, and in 90 days, they're looking like professional athletes. And you're like, man, if they can do it, I can do this. I remember seeing it, and I was like, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is... I don't know if it's going to work. So I found myself using YouTube to comb through the channels to see, man, is there somebody on here that looks like me? So I can guarantee that I'm going to look like that 
in 90 days. That's what the cloud of witnesses serves for us. It serves as proof, as evidence to say that though these people were not perfect, the confidence and assurance that we can have as believers is that God is the one to be glory. God is the one to be exalted. He's the one that does the work. And he's the one that when we look at the stumbles and the falls and the weaknesses and the frailties, the only confidence we can have is God said. The only confidence that we can have is that God said, and so therefore it will be. My encouragement to us as we think through this is this is why it's so important for us to know God's word. This is so why it's so important for us to immerse ourselves in God's spoken holy word so that when times of disappointment, when times of doubt, when times of uncertainty come to us, we can look back at, at what God has done in the past and say, God, because of what you've done in the past, I can be assured of what you'll do in the future. Paul understood this well in Philippians 1.6 where he says, and I am confident of this, and I am assured of this, that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Regardless of what I see in the middle, regardless of what's going on in my life, I am confident that he who began the work will finish it till the end. This is why we can rest assured that Though the race gets hard, though it gets unbearable at times, God has promised that he will finish what he started. As we move down, it, looking at the second half of verse 1, it says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of and protector of our faith. The second point is that he is worthy of our sacrifice and our obedience. We can run the race of endurance set before us because God is faithful, but also because he's worthy of our obedience and our sacrifice. What do I mean by that? It's easy to recognize our spiritual fatigue and to think that it's something that's uncommon. We don't really know how to diagnose it. We don't really know where it comes from. We just know we feel tired. We don't feel inclined to spend time with our brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ. We don't feel inclined to come to church. We don't feel inclined to read our Bible, but we really can't point to the source. Here, the author is gracious to us in that he alludes to what oftentimes is the cause of our spiritual weakness in our spiritual fatigue, as he points to two things that we must lay aside if we're going to be serious about running this race. He points to weights and sins. Now, weights are things in our lives that aren't necessarily bad, but they aren't really helpful. This, a lot of times, can be good things, like movies and television shows and food and Leisure, time, and sleep, all good things. These things are often discovered or can be discovered by the questions like, I know it's not bad. However, how is this going to help me? How is this truly going to benefit me in the long run? 
Will it help me grow in love and patience and goodness? Will it help me to not experience the fatigue that I will if I indulge in this thing? Will it help me to be more effective in what God has called me to do with my life? Weights often slow the progress. It, 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 it's a feeling of restriction. It restricts us from being free to run the race without any type of hindrance. At the root of what lies at our weights oftentimes is we desire to want our cake and eat it too. We want Jesus and money, Jesus and a family, Jesus and dot, dot, dot. Oftentimes, we really just can't help ourselves. Jesus isn't enough, and so we have to cling to things that will help substitute or supplement our cravings. The second thing he mentions is that there are sins in our lives. Sins that, well, we all know we sin. We all know that we are sinful people. So why does he mention sin? Well, this isn't, a, this isn't just sin, but he says it's a sin that clings closely to us. It's a type that's always near us. It's a type that we run to when we're angry or we're sad or we're frustrated. One author says that the sins which cling so closely to us are usually the ones we freely indulged in before we became Christians. These sins will usually return back to us with great power, and we are far more likely to fall into them than any other. I want to ask ourselves the question, what do you run to when you're tired? What do you run to when you feel sad or hurt? What do you run to when you feel lonely? The answer to these questions often reveal what, what sins are those that are in our lives that easily entangle us, that are easily accessible. Think of these like you would guilty pleasures. These are the things that you like to nibble on the side when no one else is looking. These are the things that when you're trying to diet and get in shape, you notice that these things are adding weight to our bodies. What do you run to? It appears that in all of our lives, these two things, weights and sins, are a very real reality. God is calling us to lay them down, but why? Why should I give that up? Why? God, I want to follow you, and I feel as though I'm doing my best, and I feel like I'm doing better than other people, so why should I sacrifice more? Why should I give up more for you? These questions, I think, expose the root of our problems. This, the root to our problem is that we have unbelief. We think that giving up something of what we would say is very valuable is a loss to us and not a benefit. That if we give up this girl that we're in a relation with that doesn't know Jesus, that somehow the loss outweighs the reward. That if we give up this 
alcohol problem that we have, that somehow the cost of that outweighs the reward of following Jesus and experiencing the freedom that he offers. The root of it is our unbelief. I'm sure all of us feel this way at times. I'm sure all of us think that the things that God is calling us from are things we're really not ready to give up. We don't think that Jesus is better than them, and so we keep them close and we run to them by default. The author is, is, is trying to paint a picture of that. No, Jesus is better. Jesus is far greater. He's of way more work, wealth, way more value. We're not getting the short end of the stick. We are not getting the short end of the stick when we sacrifice the things in our lives that are restricting us from running the race towards Jesus. We are sacrificing for a greater reward, and that is Christ. He is the one worthy of our sacrifice and obedience. We can fix our eyes on Jesus and take them off of the things that are that, that fade away, the things that aren't pleasing, the things that, that don't help us. As we look to his holy life, as we look to his patience, as we look to how he pers- persevered, as we look to how he endured the cross for our sake. All else becomes worthless. All else becomes fleeting. Philippians 3.8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus eclipses everything that we could ever deem as valuable. There's a story that I heard in college back in 2002 that I think is so key when it describes kind of what this looks like in a practical way. It's the story of a pearl necklace. The cheerful girl with bouncy golden curls was almost five. Waiting with her mother at the checkout stand, she saw them, a circle of glistening white pearls in a peak foil box. Oh, mommy, please, can I have them? Please, mommy, please. Quickly, the mother checked the back of the little foil box and then looked back into the pleading blue eyes of her daughter's upturned face. A dollar ninety-five, that's almost two dollars. If you really want them, I think some extra chores for you and in no time you can save enough money to buy them yourself. Your birthday's only a week away, and you might get another crisp dollar bill from Grandma. As soon as Jenny got home, she emptied her penny bank and counted about 17 pennies. After dinner, she did more than her fair share of chores, and so she went to the neighbor and asked Mrs. McJames if she could pick dandelions for 10 cents. On her birthday, Grandma did give her another dollar bill, and at last, she had enough money to buy the necklace. Jenny loved her pearls. They made her feel dressed up and grown up. 
She wore them everywhere, Sunday school and kindergarten and even to bed. The only time she took them off was when she went swimming or had a bubble bath. Mother said if they got wet, they might turn her neck green. (laughs) Jenny had a very loving daddy, and every night when she was ready for bed, he would stop whatever he was doing and come upstairs to read her a song. One night when he finished the story, he asked Jenny, Jenny, do you love me? Oh, yes, daddy, you know I love you. Then give me your pearls. Oh, daddy, no, not my pearls. But you can have Princess, the white horse from my collection, the one with the pink tail. Remember, daddy, the one you gave me? She's my favorite. That's okay, honey. Daddy loves you. Good night. And so he brushes her cheek with a kiss. About a week later, after story time, Jenny's daddy asks again, do you love me? Daddy, you know I love you. Then give me your pearls. Oh, daddy, not my pearls, but you can have my baby doll, the brand new one I got for my birthday. She's so beautiful. And you can have the yellow blanket that matches her sleeper. That's okay, baby. Sleep well. God bless you, little one. Daddy loves you. And as always, he continued with a kiss on the cheek. A few nights later, when her daddy came in, Jenny was sitting on her bed with her legs crossed, Indian style. As he came close, he noticed her chin was trembling and one silent tear rolled down her cheek. He said, what is it, Jenny? What's the matter, baby? Jenny didn't say anything, but lifted her little hand up to her daddy. And when she opened it, there was a little pearl necklace. With a little quiver, she finally said, here, daddy, here you go. It's for you. With tears gathering in his own eyes, Jenny's kind daddy reached out with one hand to take the dime store necklace. And with the other, he reached in his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet case with a strand of genuine pearls and gave them to Jenny. He had had them all the time. He was just waiting for her to give up the dime store stuff so that he could give her the genuine treasure. This is what God desires for us. The exchange that he wants to make with us, it it far outweighs what we could ever offer him. All of the things that we see as valuable, God is just waiting for us to surrender him so that he can say, here, I have something much better. Here, I have life and not death. Here, I have joy and not pain. Don't hold on to it. God desires for us to give up the things that hinder us because he's concerned about our good. He doesn't want to rob us of happiness. He doesn't want to rob us of joy. He doesn't want to rob us of the things that we think are so precious that we want to hold on to. No, Jesus wants to offer us something better. And that's himself. He is worthy of our sacrifice and our obedience. Let's move, move on to the last part of the ch- chapter 2 or verse 2. It reads, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Christian life is not mainly about losses. 
the Christian life is actually mainly about gains. If we see God through the lenses of eternity for us, then that gives us confidence and assurance to know that all of the pain and all of the suffering that we endure is it's only temporal. It's only for a moment. My daughter, who's three years old, she'll oftentimes get a, a hangnail on her finger. Most of the times it comes at about 12 o'clock at night where she's crying and pleading, Daddy, Daddy, my finger hurts. And so as I look on it, I'm like, you're not bleeding. It's not going to fall off. I don't even really see a hangnail. I don't understand why this is so painful. All that she's really wanting, though, is a Band-Aid. A Band-Aid on a finger that's not bleeding. We can so often be like her. We can so often look at our pains and our sufferings as if it's not going to end, as if there's going to be no relief. That's not so for the Christian because God gives us and provides us with the hope of a brighter future. The only way that we can look at our sufferings from a sobering reality and perspective is if we truly believe that what, what is to come is far greater, greater than the here and now. Here in verse 2, it says that joy, we see that joy and the cross are mentioned in the same breath. It says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How does joy and cross, how does joy and suffering go hand in hand here? How do I be, be joyful when I feel as though everything around me is falling apart? This is the model that Jesus gives to us. The cross was the lowest form of capital punishment. It was reserved for slaves and criminals. It involved the torture and the humiliation of those who hung upon it. But yet it says that Jesus treated it as worthless. Being mocked and ridiculed, ridiculed, he was scorned, and yet he viewed the cross as something as worthless and insignificant because the, at the end, the thing that he looked towards was the triumph that came from him enduring and staying there. Think about that. Jesus hanging on the cross and having all of the power in the world to remove himself and to crush his enemies, and yet he remains there. He endures it because he has redemption in the horizon. He has his sights on what is far greater than my momentary affliction? What is far greater than the suffering that I'm going to endure, endure here? He knew where he was going. This is the thing that makes us Christian. This is what makes us distinct from those in the world. God gives us joy in the midst of suffering. It's no secret that the race comes with hardship and suffering. If you've been told anything different, let's have a conversation after here. God does not promise temporary satisfaction. God does not promise an easy road, but he promises a road that's straight and that's narrow. And he promises that I've paved the way and so you will follow in my footsteps. A sober view of suffering reminds us that these two are but temporary 
afflictions. We as Christians have a greater hope in tomorrow. We as Christians have a brighter future, a pain that, that one day pain will be gone. That one day broken relationships will be restored. That one day we will finally behold our Savior face to face. Does this bring us comfort? Are we eagerly anticipating and awaiting the day that we will see Jesus face to face? What helps the Christian who is being sawn in half still rejoice as his life depletes from him? What helps the men and the women in Coptic Israel who, as they sat on the beach and were on the brink of being beheaded, sing songs and hymns rejoicing in the Savior that they profess to love? What does this? The greatest example that I see in the text is in Acts 7, 54 and 60. It reads, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed towards him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Christ was victorious on the cross. Christ defeated the very thing holding us hostage, which was sin and death. And so therefore, if he can be victorious, therefore, he now promises us of that same victory when we see him face to face. We can endure the hardships that come our way because we follow after the one who has led us into the perfect way of doing that. We don't follow after a God who can't empathize with us. We don't follow after a God who doesn't understand our hardship, doesn't understand our burdens. No, we follow a God who faced those hardships and faced those, that, that, that intense suffering and yet endured until the very end. The hope that we Christians have is that one day after all of this is said and done, we will be with Jesus. But how does this manifest itself? There's probably people in the room who feel paralyzed by their fear and their anxiety. There are probably people in the room who feel as though, man, I can't trust this God because I'm better off trusting in myself. This leads to us being self-preservationists. All of our life is, becomes consumed with what's going on with me, the, problem with it, the problems in my life, and how can I fix and manage those things. Our eyes get so easily taken away from looking to Jesus and placed on our temporary circumstances because we think that that's the most important thing. If we can be assured that 
God has taken care of our future, if we can be assured that when we leave this earth, we'll be with him forever, then we don't have to worry about the here and now. We don't have to worry about the cancer that is coming to our lives. We don't have to worry about how am I going to be healed. Regardless of whether or not God heals us, we know that at the end of the day, we'll be with him in glory. We can keep fighting. We can keep pressing in. We don't have to do God's job for him. He does it just fine on his own. Our hope in a brighter future fuels us to move beyond today and into tomorrow. Suffering has a way of exposing whether or not we truly believe in the God that we say we do. The hope that we all have today is that, one, we don't have to place confidence in our ability to have enough faith. Christ had enough of that for us. We don't have to place our confidence in, not, in worrying about whether or not we're doubting or even loving God as well as we should. Christ did that. Our confidence lies in the person and work of Jesus. He lived the life that we could never live. He pleased God in every way that we don't and that we can't. And so, therefore, we rest in the righteousness that he provides and gives freely to those who would just reach up and grab the branch of salvation. That's the gospel. We forget it, and by default, we want to try to do. We want to try to work. We want to go back to the things that were common and familiar because they're safe and sometimes more appealing. I pray that as we leave here today that we would be reminded that the way that we endure through hard times is by one, trusting that God will complete what he started. Which means that he's worthy of our sacrifice and our obedience. And he provides us with the hope of a brighter future. The rewards far outweigh the costs. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that our hope is found in Christ. We confess weariness and brokenness and fatigue. We confess even our disbelief that you are who you say you are at times. Father, would you give us assurance and would you give us confidence and the strength right here and right now to, to trust that, Father, you will complete what you started. Father, will we trust that you are who you say you are and if we can trust you for our future, then we can trust you for today and tomorrow. God, I pray that our church would would feel a sense of freedom to even confess that we're weak, to confess that we're struggling with believing in God, to confess that we are frail and broken and we're in need of strengthening. God, we are not people who look upon that with judgment or condemnation, but Father, I pray that we would look upon those very things with the same empathy that your son Jesus do, does who bears with our weaknesses and provides us with the strength and the hope of a future with him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.